Welcome to the REARC Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high-yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leverage finance, direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, REARC's Michael Haley speaks to Katie Binns, Director of Fixed Income and Multi-Asset Indexes at Morningstar. Their discussion touches on the performance of U.S. leveraged loans in the past year, as well as her outlook on the year ahead for the asset class. And as always, we bring you our weekly summary of interesting developments in the restructuring world, as well as a preview of what's on tap for next week. We'd love to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience, so please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, December 4th. Welcome back to another episode of the Reorg Primary View podcast, where we bring you informed insights on critical issues in the leveraged finance and distressed markets. My name is Michael Haley, and I'm the Senior Primary Market Reporter at Reorg, and I'm pleased to have Katie Binns of Morningstar with me today to discuss the performance of leveraged loans this year. Katie is the Director of Fixed Income and Multi-Asset Indexes at Morningstar. Welcome, Katie. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Michael. So, Katie, as we're just about closing in on the end of 2023 and we're looking back on the leveraged finance market, it's safe to say the market has sure seen its ups and its downs. While interest rates surged, the cost of borrowing for corporate issuers became higher than years before. During these times when the market turned a bit sour, how would you define the health of the leveraged loan market? Well, I think this all comes on the backdrop of what we saw in 2022, which was just downright punishing. Treasuries failed to be a ballast. High yield couldn't even hold up against market pressures. And leveraged loan was pretty much the only asset class that didn't leave investors deep in the red. So when you contrast that to 2023, where leveraged loans are on track for a record year, with the Morningstar LSTA US Leverage Loan Index up more than 11%, year to date. This is quite remarkable given some of the volatility and pressures on this market that we've seen this year. And I think those pressures really come from three different places. Is first what we saw and experienced earlier in the year, which was the threat of the regional banking crisis and whether or not that would stem into other areas of the economy. Two is stubborn inflation resulting in this higher for longer market environment. And three is that added geopolitical uncertainty coming from the Middle East. And with each of these pressures, of course, changing investor demand uh, and primary and secondary market activity at each turn. Yet, even with these three pressures, we've really seen the strength and resiliency um, of leveraged loans as they shine with far less volatility than the other fixed income asset classes and even less volatility than the equity markets. So all told, I think that you know leveraged loans is at a banner year and um, I'm excited to see it on track to post its biggest yearly return since 2016. That's interesting. And I understand Morningstar recently published a report highlighting that the U.S. Leverage Loan Index has led all other U.S. fixed income classes this year. What do you think caused all this to happen and how has the index performed recently? Well, what we've seen happen here, you know, and the root uh, of that cause is that we're seeing the Fed's higher for longer narrative playing out, coupled with an economy that's proven 
relatively resilient to the Fed's actions. So consumers keep spending, jobs kept coming, and unemployment remains relatively low. And all of this has worked in the favor of leveraged loans. So on the higher for longer fronts, as the report mentions, loans being part of the credit sensitive portion of the market have made for really generous yields coming in at about 10.4% currently. And that's almost double what the investment grade side of the market can offer. So as rates kept rising this year, it gave loans the legs to outperform other asset classes by a really wide margin, given that boost to the underlying base rates contributing to interest return. And when you look at the index on an interest return basis, we've been looking at returns of about 8%. And so with the economy still humming, that's also helped to keep corporate balance sheets relatively strong and default late rates really low for an asset class. Um, and that default rate resiliency can be seen in a rate that sits at just about 1.3%. And put into context, that's far below levels we saw in 2020 when defaults rose to about 4% and even further below default rates when the global financial crisis was taking place, which topped 10%. So with those factors, uh, as well as the last factor, which is loan inventory, uh, it's really contributed to higher performance because with loan inventory relatively low, uh, we're seeing you know, many investors who wish to be in this space being pushed into the secondary market. Great, great. Thanks for, thanks for letting us know that, Katie. Um, I guess kind of given the overall slow issuance on the primary side of the broadly syndicated loan market over the past two years, how has this impacted activity on the secondary side? Are investors kind of seeing more opportunity in the secondary market? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, certainly we've seen a pullback in issuance versus prior years when it comes to high yield and broadly syndicated loans. And what is being issued is smaller than in prior periods, too, uh, with you know hardly any activity when it comes to jumbo loans. And that pullback in issuance and size while it has resulted in some shrinkage in overall market size, we have seen some benefits on the price side where, you know, prices of the index have, uh, you know, really rallied, especially since the summer months. You know, there is a, a function of this on the loan side where, where private credit has been flourishing. Um, and we've seen a lot of refinancing activities for loans in the index or even new deals that might have previously gone through the broadly syndicated markets. And we understand the firms are going this route because of the cost efficiencies and execution it brings. And while some investors may think, man, that's really bad for the broadly syndicated loan market and it's bad for the secondary market if, uh, you know, if assets are going to the private credit side, I don't see it that way. I think that the availability of private credit for refinancing deals has actually helped to keep default rates really low and keep the broadly syndicated and high yield markets in very healthy condition for investors in the secondary market. So I think as like as issuers look to add debt from here, I think they're continue to use the the source of of capital and financing that's going to give them the most flexibility and efficiency. And so that can spell good things for both the broadly syndicated markets as well as other avenues. No, you're spot on with the impact of private credit on 
uh, on the broadly syndicated loan market. And it'll be interesting to see what issuers kind of uh, use both term, both types of financing moving forward. Um, next, I'd like to kind of get your perspective, I guess, um, you know, given the outperformance of leveraged loans this year, how has this impacted corporate issuers on their preference over uh, loans versus high yield bond? Is the index perform does the index performance say anything about issuers wanting to, uh, you know, take on floating rate debt over fixed rate debt? Well, I think what you see happening in the index is really more of an outcome of their decisions rather than a driver of their decisions, if you will. So as firms choose whether or not fixed rate or floating rate is, is best for their own capital structure, right, you'll see that reflected in, you know, what's within an index or what's tracking in a market. I'd say that Given the current market environment, right, the the option for flexibility by you know issuing floating rate um, certainly has some attractive levels. Most firms don't want to be locked in for long term financing deals on a high yield bond uh, with rates where they are. But you know the market environment will always change, and firms will always be more incented to to choose the route that gives them the most flexibility and efficiency for their funding needs. Great. Now switching to the buy side of the market, Katie, how do you think investors are looking to allocate their portfolios with leveraged loans? Do you think investors are a little bit more bullish on leveraged loans now given the outperformance this past year? So today, more than ever, investors have a variety of instruments that they can use as part of their portfolio allocations. And with any market environment, a regular review of portfolio positioning is important. And that, of course, that positioning depends on the overall investment objective and risk tolerance level. And so I think many investors obviously experience the, the benefits of being bullish on leveraged loans this year. We saw rates continue to rise. Leveraged loans is one of the best performing asset classes. And even as the Fed aims to achieve that dual mandate of maximum employment and stable prices through their policy action, I think there's still plenty of room to be bullish on leveraged loans going forward. We have seen some, you know, evidence of rate cuts being priced into the market, and even if that does materialize, yields and risk-adjusted returns are likely to stay attractive into 2024, lending it very well to having a meaningful portion of leveraged loans as part of a portfolio. Great. Thanks for letting us know, Katie. Um, finally, kind of as we're wrapping up here, I'd just love to get your outlook on the leveraged loan market looking ahead to 2024. Uh, do you see another period of outperformance in this asset class or do you see conditions changing at all? The macro and economic environment is going to have a lot to do with what happens in the loan market next year. But when we look at the performance history of leveraged loans as an asset class since 1999, only three out of those years did leveraged loans not notch a positive performance. That's actually a much better track record than U.S. Treasuries, high yield bonds. Um, and so while well, 2023 is looking like it will close at the highest level we've seen since 2016 for the index, and I don't think we're going to have another record-breaking year next year. 2024 still looks like it will have a lot of positive outcomes in store for investors with generous yields. And given what the latest figures that we've seen on inflation, you know, coming out of the most recent report, I think that investors may actually um, 
get to see a soft landing and and a soft landing would be good for leverage loans. Absolutely. Well, we will have to wait and see. Um, Katie, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure to have you on Reorg's Primary View podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Michael. For in-court coverage this week, we take a look at Nine West, Rite Aid, Acumen, 3M, Purdue Pharma, and the latest developments coming out of former Southern District of Texas Bankruptcy Judge David R. Jones's resignation from the bench. The U.S. Court of Appeals for a Second Circuit held that $78 million in payroll transfers made by Nine West to certain directors, officers, and employee shareholders of its publicly traded predecessor, the Jones Group, were not shielded from avoidance and recovery by the Nine West Litigation Trust under the Bankruptcy Code's safe harbor provisions. The transfers were tied to Sycamore Partners' $1.105 billion leverage buyout of the Jones Group in 2014, in which the private equity firm took the footwear and apparel company private and renamed it Nine West, four years before the company filed for Chapter 11. In 2018. The Second Circuit partly reversed a 2020 district court ruling that dismissed almost all of the fraudulent transfer and unjust enrichment claims brought by the anonymous litigation trust stemming from the LBO. The Circuit Court ruled that the transactions in question must be analyzed on a transfer-by-transfer -transfer basis to determine if the safe harbor applies, specifically whether the company qualifies as a financial institution by acting as the agent of its bank, Wells Fargo. On Wednesday, the Rite Aid debtors and the U.S. government announced an agreement under which the debtors' adversary proceedings seeking a preliminary injunction barring the government's KETAM False Claims Act and Controlled Substances Act opioid suit from proceeding will be stayed through at least January 18, 2024. During that time, the parties will attempt to negotiate a substantive resolution, counsel said. The debtors also extended sale-related deadlines for their Elixir non-core pharmacy benefit manager business and core retail pharmacy business. Bids for both sets of assets are now due on December 18th. Judge Christopher Lopez confirmed the Acumen debtors' prepackaged plan of reorganization at an uncontested hearing last week. Debtors' counsel said the company does not expect any real speed bumps with its expedited regulatory applications and aims to go effective in mid to late January. The court also approved on a final basis the debtors' supplemental dip financing, increasing the debtors' dip facility to $130 million from $75 million. In an opinion with potentially far-reaching consequences for claims against manufacturers and distributors of per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit ordered the decertification and dismissal of a federal class action against 3M, E.I. DuPont, Nemours, and Chemours Co., among others. The court emphasized that the plaintiff, a former firefighter who used aqueous film forming foams containing PFAS, could not trace the forms of PFAS in his blood to the foams he used. The ubiquity of PFAS in the environment and the many manufacturers and distributors of chemicals containing PFAS over more than 50 years of use could make it difficult for many plaintiffs to determine the origin of the PFAS in their bodies and thus state claims for personal injury or medical monitoring under the Sixth Circuit's traceability requirements. The U.S. District Court of the Southern District of Texas extended former Judge David R. Jones's deadline to respond to a complaint filed against him by Michael Van Dielen. Plaintiff alleges that Jones retaliated against him for outing the judge's inappropriate relationship with Elizabeth Freeman, a former partner at Jackson Walker. Jones argued that an extension is justified because he asked the U.S. Department of Justice to represent him in the Van Dielen suit, and the request is still under consideration. Jones also signaled he believes he has judicial immunity from Van Dielen's claims. Jones' response deadline is now 60 days after he completes service upon the United States or the date the DOJ declines to represent him. Ahead of oral arguments on Monday at the U.S. Supreme Court, Reorg's team continued its coverage of the Purdue Pharma appeal. 
Analysis this week explored the arguments for and against the non-consensual, non-debtor releases of produce owners, the Sackler family, in the opioid maker's plan of reorganization. To access Reorg's full coverage of Purdue, please reach out to a Reorg representative. This week, Travelport and iCare Partners eye near-term restructuring to refinancings. Xerox cash balance continues to decline, and Reorg analyzes loans held by business development companies where the borrower has filed for Chapter 11. Travelport is in discussions with creditors with large positions in the company's capital structure, as the company burned a significant amount of cash in September and faces a heavy coupon burden next month, according to sources. The company told lenders that it planned to open up any new money infusion to all lenders. The company ended October with $33 million in cash, up from $17 million a month earlier on account of a $60 million benefit from working capital, the sources added. iCare Partners continue to wrestle with a liquidity crunch, with its cash balance dropping to about $8 million at the end of the third quarter. The company announced its third quarter earnings late Wednesday, November 29th, saying its quarterly pro-forma-adjusted EBITDA was $39.7 million, down from $55.8 million in the year earlier period, and the LTM pro-forma-adjusted EBITDA came in at $144 million. Xerox cash balance has declined over the past several years to just $532 million as of September 30th, driven by $2.6 billion of dividends and share repurchases over the period, after growing from $1 billion in 2018 to $2.7 billion in 2019. Meanwhile, net reduction in its debt totaled only $735 million over the past several years. The company's revenue has largely stalled since a substantial drop of 23% in 2020, driven by office closures. The company had ample liquidity of $591 million as of September 30th pro forma for its November 15th debt refinancing, with cash on hand accounting for $511 million. However, in each year since 2020, cash used for dividends and share repurchases has been close to double free cash flow. This week, Rierick published an analysis of loans held by Business Development Companies, or BDCs, in which the borrower filed for Chapter 11 in 2022 or 2023. Because many BDC investments are in private loans and BDC managers are required to provide fair market value marks for all investments, BDCs can be used as a good proxy to track valuations and trends in lending. Business development companies' recoveries on private debt as a result of a Chapter 11 restructuring tend to be lower than fair values assigned to these investments prior to petition dates, according to analysis of loans held by BDCs. However, because a large number of single-lender private credit deals resulted in a par recovery for lenders, the recovery shortfall to pre-petition marks is greater for private credit club deals or loans held by more than one lender where the loan is not broadly syndicated and for publicly traded or broadly syndicated loans than the average recovery shortfall. To access the full analysis on Reorg's private credit coverage, please reach out to a Reorg representative. Top Red Stories this week included Double Dip and Pari Plus Latest Twist in Liability Management, Jackson Walker agrees to district court hearing certain UST fee disputes, Purdue Plan proponents question whether opioid victims have truly direct claims against Sackler family, North American primary reopens as rates retreat from 5% level, China developer shares rally on whitelist hopes, Telecolumbus creditors agree to debt extension after MSIP injects new equity. And now here's Kate Thomas in New York bringing you the week ahead. Welcome to the week ahead. My name is Kate Thomas. A longer schedule of this week's events can be found on the REARG website under America's Week Ahead. The week starts at the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday, where the opponents of Purdue Pharma's plan of reorganization are defending the plan's non-consensual, non-debtor releases of Purdue's owners, the Sackler family. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit determined that bankruptcy courts have authority to approve non-consensual, non-debtor releases in Chapter 11 plans, affirming a decision from former bankruptcy judge Robert Drain. 
However, the U.S. trustee is challenging the negative notice opt-out structure of the releases as non-consensual, especially with respect to parties that do not receive a recovery under the plan or do not otherwise get to vote. The U.S. trustee argues the releases would prevent victims of Purdue's aggressive opioid marketing tactics from asserting direct claims against the Sackler family and their affiliates. As a result, the U.S. trustee says the releases are impermissible under the U.S. Constitution and the Bankruptcy Code. Purdue, the official committee of unsecured creditors, and other planned proponents argue that not only were the releases legally permissible, but also that the claims against the Sacklers essentially belong to Purdue rather than alleged victims, and thus nothing is really being released under the non-debtor release provisions after all. Also on Monday, Golden Tree and Sincora will be in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit in their appeal of Judge Laura Taylor Swain's order staying their motion for relief from the automatic stay to appoint a receiver in the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority Title III case. Golden Tree and Sincora argue that the automatic stay was automatically lifted by operation of law when they did not get a hearing within 30 days. Golden Tree and Sincora say that the right to a hearing under the bankruptcy code is a, quote, critically important due process protection for the property rights of creditors, unquote. This week also features several other big hearings. On Tuesday, Sunlight Financial has its confirmation hearing, followed by Air Methods on Wednesday. The Amherst debtors also have a disclosure statement status conference on Monday, and Smile Direct Club has a disclosure statement approval hearing on Friday. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website and have a great week. Thank you again for tuning in to the Reorg Prime Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.